Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. So in the film, I'm loud today. Wow, in the film, let's try that again. The princess protests to her captor, you mock my pain, to which he replies, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. It seems like a cynical view on life, but most of us know this is actually true. To live is to suffer. We see that as we look around the world, a world filled with poverty and war. Slavery today, there's more slaves today than there ever have been in the historic past. Injustices and suffering are everywhere. And you know pain personally. I think if we went in this room, we would find struggles with sin and addiction, dealing with very hurtful betrayal, abuse, sickness, loss, tragedy, death. And then some of the very modern versions of pain and suffering, that profound loneliness that many of us experience. 
or going through an entire life with unmet longings, with hopes and dreams that never come to fruition. And it's like life is one giant groaning ache. There's the struggle that many people today wrestle with, the existential questions of who am I? Why am I here? Do I even matter? And does anyone care? Life is pain. Which is why we're looking at Romans 8 today. Because Romans 8 is a, is a passage of the Bible filled with lots of promise of God, and yet it's in the context of suffering. Here are some of the terms and ideas that are scattered throughout Romans 8. We have fear and slavery, futility, bondage, corruption, birth pains, groaning, dashed hopes, weakness, uncertainty, helplessness, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, violence, or sword, spiritual forces of evil, evil and death. Paul is making sure to cover all the bases. Like, hey, if you've dealt with something, we're going to try and throw it up there, all right? So he's acknowledging that life is pain. And the question then is, so what do we do with it? How can we make something out of this life if life really is suffering and pain? One of the main things that Paul gives us is the hope of glory. We see this in verse 18 and 28 and following. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. And then that famous verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He goes on, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he also glorified. What Paul's doing there in the midst of this suffering context is trying to give perspective. He's saying, if you have the right view, the view of God, you will have perspective. Have the long view on the suffering you're dealing with, which is not easy to do, but he's basically saying, Look, suffering may last for a moment, for a year, for a decade, for a lifetime. But in 300 trillion years, when you've been in the presence of God in greatest glory forever, nothing compares. And he tries to give us hope too. The hope is the certainty of what's to come. So much so that he uses the word glorified, a past tense verb of something that's going to happen in the future. One day you will be glorified, but the way that Paul can talk about it is those whom God has justified, he has glorified. The future promises of God in Scripture, the future promises of God in Scripture are as certain and sure as if they happened in the past. Hope in the things that God promises is not a false hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's as certain as if it already happened. But I've dealt with these passages in the past, so go look up the sermon on Romans 8 from a past sermon. What I want to know now is not how do we have the long view or even that perspective shift, but rather what about now? How do we live life now? What does God give us to endure and maybe even to flourish in a life that is often filled 
with unmet longings, deep aches, and a lot of pain. Well, we get in our series that we've been going through in the Catechism what God grants us in saving us. This is question number 16, which is what we're looking at today. What does God grant in saving you? The answer is, God grants me reconciliation with Him, forgiveness of sins, adoption into His family, citizenship in His kingdom, union with Him in Christ, new life in the Holy Spirit, and the promise of eternal life. We don't have time to go through each one of these, so instead we're going to look at Romans 8 and some of the promises that we get in Romans 8 that coincide with or parallel what's being talked about in the promise of what God grants us in saving us. Because I think in them is the hope for now, for how to live this life now. And what promise do we get in Romans 8? Well, we get the Trinity. We get the promise of a father who adopts us, who accepts and embraces us, of the Spirit who knows us, and of His Son who loves us. What does God give us to endure this life? He gives us Himself. We see it very clearly starting in verse 15 when He talks about adoption. Let me go ahead and read that again. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit, the Holy Spirit, of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Let's walk through this a little bit to see some of the promise that God gives us. The first thing I want to hit at is that he adopts us. We are adopted. To be adopted in the Roman world meant you had all the rights, privileges, and benefits of a natural-born child. And functionally, your status and identity changed at the moment that you were legally adopted. Adoption in the Roman world most often happened with adults, not with little babies. It was the adding of a son to a family, often as a love grant to a good servant or for a dad who did not have sons to inherit his property. And think about what that meant. In a day and age when status and honor were determined by being a patriarchal landowner, that moment of adoption was a time when somebody who was of the lowest caste, who was a slave or a servant and had nothing in life, quickly became the son of a patriarch and had to be recognized by everyone in the village as somebody of honor and status. He went from a nobody to a somebody instantly. And we also get in this that being adopted means you become an heir. In the ancient world, inheritance was extremely significant because it was part of how a family carried on their land, but it was also how you were identified in the community, and it determined your future. If you did not have an inheritance, you had no future. A landless slave had no hope in the future. They could easily, within a few weeks, starve to death. But somebody who had land had a hope and a future. In other words, once, once somebody was adopted, their future was determined. It was no longer uncertain. They knew where they were going and what they were going to become when they inherited their land. So think about those status shifts 
your future and hopes shift instantly. And that's what Paul is saying happens when we come to faith in Christ. We are adopted as children of God, not just as children of God, but actually he uses the word sons. We're adopted as sons, which actually sounds pretty sexist to our day and age. And there are times in the Bible when the language is actually ambivalent, when they use the word son and it could be son or daughter. And there's times when Paul uses a word like children. We're all children. But when it comes to adoption and using the language of adoption and inheritance, it's an intentional choice to say son. Why? In a traditional culture, in a traditional culture, women are devalued. In that traditional culture, Everyone knew that only a son could inherit land. Only a son could carry on the family name and therefore the family honor. If you were a woman in a family, you were only worth what you could get in exchange for you being betrothed. You did nothing for the family. So if you were a woman growing up in that world, you knew of yourself as somebody who is dependent and devalued. So to hear that in Christ you become a son was not seen or heard by a woman in that day and age as sexist, but incredibly powerful. It meant all the rights and privileges that she had seen her brothers always have, that all the men in the community always got to do, all the things that were theirs because they were men were equally hers in Christ. In God's eyes, there was no difference. You were both equally honorable, of high status, and heirs of the kingdom. That is an incredibly powerful promise to a woman in that day and age, or to any of us, any of us who have ever felt like outcasts, like not worth it, like other people are better. Your status and future is not just as a son, but as God's son. In other words, when God sees you, he's viewing you as if he's viewing Jesus. You are as Jesus to God the Father. And the third thing we get in this little passage here, these little verses, is is that we are able by the Spirit to call out and call God Abba, the Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry Abba, Father. How we approach God is affected by our view of God. In my experience in talking to people is many of us have a distorted or a false view of God. Some people, if you go out and talk to to anyone on the street, would say that God is is like a force. It's a distant and impersonal force. When that's your view of God, then you really don't have a desire to know him or spend time with him. Your view of God is equivalent to that of gravity. Like nobody says, so how's your relationship with gravity going? How do you feel about gravity these days? Have you been praying to gravity? I mean, I'm, I'm aware of it when the plane's taking off. I'm aware of it when I'm jumping off the diving board. But I don't really think about it. I mean, it's just a force I live with, right? You see what happens when you think of God as a distant force? You distance yourself from God. Another view is that of God as judge. God is angry and capricious, and we're living in constant fear and guilt. When that's the view of God, we're constantly trying to avoid God striking us. We'll have the, the same approach as a, as a dog who's being disciplined. 
I'm the disciplinarian for our dog, and when the dog is being disciplined, he quickly runs over to one of my kids or my wife and averts his eyes. He won't make eye contact with a skipper. As if, if he can't see me, I'm not going to be angry at him. We do the same thing with God if our view of him is that of judge. We're constantly aware of our sinfulness and our guilt and shame, and we're trying to avoid interacting with him. And if we do it, we, we want to make sure we do it right so we don't get struck. It's such a false and distorted view of God, and so different from what we're promised and called to here in this passage. The Spirit enables us to call God Abba, that was a common and colloquial term. It was a Hebraism, an Aramaic language. It was a way of saying dad, or in the Spanish family, poppy. And what's interesting is this is absolutely unique to Christianity. There is tons of writings in the ancient and Jewish world. And up to this point, God, Yahweh, is called father a few times, but he is never called dad, poppy. Abba. What is Jesus doing? He's applying a term for God that he uses. Jesus is the one who can call God dad, and he says, if your faith is in me, you can call him dad too. Think about the difference if your view is that of God as your dad. Not just a father, but your dad. If you have a good relationship with your dad, with your father, if you did, then you know that there's an ease and a trust around your dad. Why? Because you know him and he's known you. You've just, you're comfortable around him. When I was a kid, if I wanted to see or talk to my dad, I didn't call up the secretary and arrange an appointment in a couple of weeks. I didn't get my lawyer to talk to his lawyer to set up a meeting time. It was my dad. Our relationship, if we're calling him Abba and we see him as Abba, is much more like that of a close friend. With a close friend, you will call them, you will message them, you'll stop by, there's no formality. It's kind of like some of my good friends in college where I always knew where they were. There was a certain spot on the sofa where if you walked into the apartment, that they were right there. And there's a comfort there, knowing if, if I need to find him, I, I know where he'll be. When you view God as Abba and not judge or force, you start interacting with him on a day-in and day-out connectedness. Your relationship with him is like, it's like sharing a room with your brother or having your best friend living next door. And it means that we can have regular interaction and ongoing conversation with God that we're praying and seeking guidance and confessing and asking for help and pouring out our fears and pains to him constantly. And at times we get weak and don't even know what to say or do with this God, and he helps us even more. The Spirit is given to us to enable us to continue that relationship with him. We see this in verse 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, 
because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You know what this tells us? This tells us the Spirit of God knows us better than we know ourselves. And not in an impersonal force sort of way, like an MRI or a TSA body scanner that can see things about you you maybe don't know about yourself. The Spirit knows us like a best friend, knowing your likes and your dreams and your fears, that you have this soft spot for baby animals. The Spirit knows our heart, our mental and emotional core. Many of us go through days, or at least have moments, when we feel like nobody gets me. Nobody understands what I'm dealing with right now. Every one of us has dealt with that. This tells us the Spirit does get you. God gets you. His Spirit knows your heart better than you know your heart. He knows your pains better than you know your pains. And it's why it says that the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. Groanings too deep for words. That is very evocative language. It means a primitive and natural response to an unnatural and fallen state. It is something deep inside of us, a groaning ache, if you would. And this tells us the Spirit knows our heartache, our grief and our sorrows, our unmet longings and our crushed dreams. And when we don't know what to pray for or even how to pray, but we are in the midst of either identifying with someone else's pain and need or bringing our own hurt and confusion and weakness before God, the Spirit groans along with us. There are times when we don't know how to pray for somebody, but we ache in longing love for them. We're in our own confusion and frustration. When the Spirit turns our ache into a prayer. What does it actually look like to have God with you, dwelling in you, assuring, speaking, interceding for you? It can sound sort of esoteric out there, like the Spirit's going to groan for you. So I actually asked a few people, how have you experienced the Holy Spirit in your life, assuring or interceding? And here's just some responses of regular people who believe in Christ. One person said, the Spirit reminds me of the truth about who God is and who I am. Another said, the Spirit convicts me of sin, specifically how I'm looking to other things for love, other things to fill me up rather than to the love of God. A third said, I've experienced the Holy Spirit as a deep sense of not being alone especially when I have felt most alone, and also of his consoling spirit as he grieves alongside me in my sorrow. A fourth said, I've experienced the spirit in an overwhelming joy, in an understanding of God belonging in his rightful position on the throne, and a desire just to praise him. No other words or inclinations enter my mind in those moments other than words of praise for him and a longing for it to never end wanting to live in that space regularly. Another person said, I've had moments of overwhelming mental and emotional awareness of how much God loves me, 
as well as an ongoing peace, the assurance that I am a child of God. Many of you remember Brian Berry's God in Life testimony a little over a year ago when he was going through an intensely dark season of anxiety and fear related to his cancer. And one afternoon in the midst of that crushing fear, he heard the word of God speaking to him. God through the Spirit speaking audibly into his ears, into his mind. And all God said to him was, my son, oh my son. That was enough. Because in that moment he experienced the flooding of joy and of peace and the assurance that God loved him and his family more than he could. So he had no reason for fear. What does it feel like to experience the Spirit? It's the very sure awareness of the truth, of deeper joy and peace and assurance that you are loved and that you are not alone. And if you've never had anything like that, cry out, cry out, seek God the Father, and pray that he will reveal himself to you, specifically his love for you. God does love us. Hear these words. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Gave up his son, and God will give us all things we need. Does God love you? Many of us struggle with that because we suspect God's holding out. He's holding stuff back from us. Does he really want the best for us? I'm not sure if we can trust him. That usually comes out when we are comparing ourselves to others. They have a better job, tons of money, fantastic vacations. Why do they get to have a perfect marriage when mine crumbled years ago, or I've never been married? It's very easy to question God's love. Where is he? Does he really love me? Does he actually have my best interests in mind? But the assurance that we get is not you're going to get what you think you want. The assurance we get is he already gave us all we need because he already gave us his son. In verse 32, it says it very clearly. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, all things that we actually need. Think about what this means. What is your most prized possession? As a four-year-old, it was a blanket that I dragged around with me everywhere. It was imperative that I had that with me to suck my thumb properly and to sleep at night. And there was no way I was going to lend that out freely. If my best friend asked for a blanket, there was no way he was getting my blanket. I would go and get him a brand new blanket if I would have had the money. What is most valuable to you? Who is most important in your life? God the Father freely gave us what is and was most important to us, his son. 
He gives us what we need, which means we can trust him. We can trust him with our lives because we do know that he loves us. And the assurance is in this that God is actually for us. One friend of ours who's single and expressed why she wanted to get married said once, because I want a teammate. I want to feel like I'm not alone, that somebody's on my side, that there's somebody to share with, to celebrate with. I want to feel like I'm not alone. I need a teammate. If you read through Romans 8, what you hear is God is for us, and he is on our team in a way that a spouse can never be. A best friend will never live up to. No family or friends can fill the void that is meant for God as your true soulmate your true teammate. God loves us deeply. And nothing, verses 35 to 39 tell us, no one can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The whole point of this is nothing we can do or nothing that can be done to us can push Christ's love away if our faith is in him. He already died for us, which means we have been made right, justified, and there is no condemnation anymore. We are fully loved in Christ, as fully loved as we could ever dream of finding love in this world. We just need to realize that this is true and live out of it. How much does God love us? He exchanges our cry and his cry. The Spirit, the passage tells us, the Spirit enables us to see God as a dad, to cry out, Abba, Father, God, my my dad. That word cry is a powerful emotional exclamation. The Spirit enables us to see God not as a distant force or as an angry judge, but it's actually this response internally. The Lord God is my father, my dad, and I'm his son. And that word cry is the same word that's used of Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. But Jesus' cry was the exact opposite. He cried out, my God, my father, my Abba, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? The gospel is this. Our cries have been exchanged. Jesus endured our cry of dereliction, bearing the punishment of forsakenness that we deserve for our sin, for our rejection of God, so that we who put our faith in him can joyfully cry out, Abba, to God. He takes our forsaken cry and gives us a cry of God as dad who loves and forgives and accepts and dwells in us. Do you see how much you're loved? God is Trinity. Today is Trinity Sunday. We've been looking at Father, Son, and Spirit. God is Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit are eternal, continual perfect communion 
Three persons, one God. Individuality and unity. The Bible tells us we are made in the image of God. We are actually made in the image of God who is Trinity. Which is why we have an innate desire for relationships. We are not made to be alone. And it's also why one of the greatest pains of anyone who goes through suffering is when they have to do it alone. Or when you feel like you're doing it alone. That no one understands. No one's with you. No one's on your team. But the gospel tells us the God whom we reject and offend with our sin and unbelief, he died for us. He adopts us and he dwells with us. And he invites us into relationship with him, Father, Son, and Spirit. The promise of God for us is the acceptance of a father, a dad who embraces us. The love of his son who died for us, a love we can never get away from. And the presence of his spirit who knows us and is with us always. There is no promise that being a Christian will make your life easier. But there is the promise of God, that God gives himself to us. And that we are known and we are loved and we are never alone. Let's pray. Almighty God, you loved the world and gave your only Son that whoever believes in him would not need to perish but have eternal life. Pour into our hearts the gift of love by your Holy Spirit who has been given to us that we may live out of the delight of being a son and a daughter of God and live into the joy of our eternal inheritance and live to praise you through Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.